0: Well, our series in the book of Daniel has attempted to do just that, help us think about living in the world that's changing all the time, and showing forth that we actually do know there is a God who is the Most High God. He is greater than any other so-called God or idol. He is the Most High God. That's the title that's been given throughout the book of Daniel, and we're going to wrap up this section of Daniel this morning. And um, if you have your Bible, let's open to chapter 6. Another harmless Sunday school flannel graph story. Daniel chapter 6. Today we're going to the lion's den. One thing that we know that has happened throughout um, the, the book of Daniel is God has been shown to be the one who raises up and sets down kingdoms. And the kingdoms have transitioned a couple of times by the time we get to chapter 6. Now it is the kingdom of the Medo-Persian Empire. Nations come and nations go. We tend to think about our own society and civilization as being enduring forever but it won't. One day all the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and then he will reign forever and ever. But the pattern is that God is always working as nations come and go. So we come to chapter 6 and verse 1. It pleases, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Darius is a name that we don't know a lot about, and I think it's best to think that Darius is actually Cyrus, and Darius is a title like Caesar or Pharaoh or a king, And Darius is the new ruler over the Medo-Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire having come to an end in chapter 5. And Darius, or the king, uh, sets up these 120 princes, satraps. They are presidents. They're rulers probably over territories. And then he selects that three people should govern the 120. And so you have an organizational structure that's set up under the king. uh, And Daniel's one of them. You see in verse 2 in your Bible, over the officials, Daniel was one. That might mean that he was the first one picked, or he was one of the three, or he was the most important one of the three who watched the 120. But the whole point of setting up the organizational structure is that it would be good for the kingdom, that the kingdom would suffer no loss. Verse 3 tells us about the one that we've been looking at for all this time. Verse 3 says, Then this Daniel, I like that, this Daniel became distinguished among all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now you'll recall that the people came out of Israel. About 70 to 75 years earlier, and Daniel was a teenager, probably, which puts him at 85. And at 85, under a new administration, Darius wants to set him over the whole kingdom because he was distinguished over all the others. I love that he's 85 years old, or maybe pushing 90, and he is the one who is set up not as a spiritual leader, but as a governor. He's working for the government. He's got a government job. And he's recognized. Think of him as being an older man who passed through all of the administrations that have come from Nebuchadnezzar and then a couple others that were very short and then Belshazzar and now Darius. And there he still is, a leader among all the other leaders at this age in his life, because he has this excellent spirit within him. I think it's it's a statement about his his internal attitude, what's in him. I I don't want to over-spiritualize it that it was the Holy Spirit, but it was. But just the way he was perceived, he was an excellent guy. And I love that he was able to travel through the different administrations, steady, faithful, wise, all the way. Which, by the way, should remind those of us who are 55 plus or higher that God's not done with you. We should really think that our life is significant until it isn't. And this coming in. Says so good to see you. Well, it's good to be seen rather than viewed. Uh, that's a good line. It's good to be seen rather than viewed. When you're viewed, there's... There's not much left to do. But until then, you have something to contribute for the kingdom of God. And I want everybody who's on the upper end to think God's not done with you. I love this picture of Daniel in this case. So we go on. Verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. This is a guy who has such a good reputation that they can't find anything in his life with regard to his work in the kingdom. Now, when that registers to us, you have to imagine that Daniel is faithful to the Most High God, and he's working in a pagan culture under pagan kings who worship other deities, and he is exemplary in the work that he does for the kingdom of Babylon, and now the Medo-Persian Empire, and he is still sought out as being an exemplary governor for pagan kings. I love that. When When it comes to his work, there's nothing to complain about. This is not talking about his spiritual life. It's about his rule and his function as probably as the prime minister. So that you could, uh, you could ask, how could anyone find any fault in Daniel? And they couldn't. They couldn't find any fault in him. How could they not like him? But you can see that there's something going on here. They wanted to find a ground for complaint against Daniel. Why? Because Daniel rose to a height of authority and leadership over the kingdom that created a sense of jealousy and envy and hatred, even to the point of wanting to actually murder him because he rose up as a leader. I find this an interesting dynamic that is found again and again in the Bible, that jealousy leads to envy and then hatred, and the mind actually goes crazy. So that you might even think about murdering someone who doesn't agree with you or who has exceeded you in position. As sure as a leader rises, there'll be those who will try to take the leader out. Have you ever seen that? You ever seen it in a company where somebody rises up in the company and gets a promotion over somebody else, and well, well, I thought I was going to get that, or somebody says, well, I should have got that. I've been here longer, and that happens in the company, and is let's figure out a way to tear them down happens in the university of somebody who gets tenure and somebody who doesn't um there are these things called social media platforms now where someone can rise in prominence on twitter or whatever and boy you think about someone rising up to to be somebody on twitter and how long does it take until somebody's trying to pull them down you know what i'm saying Can it happen in the church, I think it happens in the church. It happened to the apostle Paul. The apostle Paul was a great apostle preaching, he was in prison, and suddenly there arose people who purposely tried to make Paul's life difficult for him while he was in prison by the way in which they were doing their ministry. In Philippians chapter 1, he said, Some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, and others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm here for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to add affliction to me in prison. Like, where does that come from? It comes from this sense of envy and jealousy that would lead someone to say, I should have that audience. I should have that. And you have Daniel, who is absolutely exemplary in everything in his life. He had done no harm to any of them, but they want to take him down. He is a shadow, a foreshadow of someone who had no fault, although he was a sinner, right? He wasn't the Christ. But he does foreshadow the Christ. Where it says of him he was perfect, he he could find no fault in him, but they want to destroy him. Can you imagine anyone being upset with Daniel? It doesn't make sense. But can you imagine anyone being upset with Jesus, the Son of God, who never sinned? Can you imagine that? What led that? That was jealousy, which led to hatred and attempt to murder. And that's the whole part of the story that's happening here. So verse 5. Then these men, who could find no fault in Daniel, said, We'll not find any ground to complain against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of God. We have to figure out a way to pit Daniel against his fidelity to his God. And if we can find a way to put a wedge between Daniel and his God and Daniel and the king, we'll get somewhere in taking him out because that's all they wanted to do was take Daniel out. And we know he's not going to compromise his faith with his God. Listen, this is a really crucial understanding of what happens here, that when the laws of God contradict the conventions of mankind and the opinions of man and the laws of man, that'll be the point of attack that the enemy will come to take in. What does God say that the culture disagrees with? What is the government or culture saying that God says no to? And Daniel's going to be put in a place right now where he's going to have to make a decision. You will not bow down to another. It's the Lord God you serve. So they've got to find something in the law that will make Daniel have to compromise. Before we go further, let's just think for a moment. What does the Bible say about governments that are set up Romans chapter 13 says you should submit yourself to every human authority which is ordained by God. So we're called on to submit in the government in which we live until we're not to. And when is that? Well, we have a couple of examples in the Bible that help us. When is it right to say no to a governing authority, which Daniel is going to do in this case? Well, what helps us? I'm going to put a couple on the screen. You can write them down in your notes. But in uh, Acts chapter 4, before the Sanhedrin, the apostles, Peter and John, were ordered not to spread any further news about Jesus. And they warned them not to speak in Jesus' name. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you decide what we should do. We've already decided. We cannot help but speak about the things that we have seen and heard. At the end, you determine, should we listen to you or should we listen to God? and that makes it easy, right? In the next chapter, it happens again, chapter 5. Chapter 5, the high priest rose up. They were all very upset, and chapter 5, verse 17 says they were filled with jealousy, common theme, and they arrested the apostles, put them in prison. And then verse 27 of chapter 5, and the high priest questioned them. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, and yet here you are, you filled jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us and peter and the apostles answered we must obey god rather than men so when does the law of the medo persian empire when is it right to set it aside it's when it contradicts with the law of god when is it right to disobey the government of the united states for conscientious Christians, it's when it calls us to actively deny God or resist his moral law. What follows this is that it says they were furious and they wanted to find a way to murder them. So once you see this, it's envy, jealousy, hatred, murder. And they want to murder Daniel. That's on their mind to do it. Let's go back to our text. I'll just tell the plot. It's not on the screen, but in verse 6, then the high officials and the satraps got together and said, oh, Darius, live forever. That's what you have to say when you go before the king. Go, king, live forever, which they won't. And all the high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any God or man for 30 days, except you O king shall be cast into the den of lions. Now that's a, that's a tall order, isn't it? They come before Darius and they say, we're all agreed. Was that true? No, it wasn't true. It was a lie. Daniel hadn't been consulted. I'm sure. And, here they say, we're all agreed. Suddenly there's a big group think going on, which happens in the mob mentality. Everyone, everyone is saying, you ever heard that? I get that. Everyone's saying, well, maybe everybody, but probably not everybody, but we all agree that you should do this. And they appeal to the, the ego of the king. We want to make you God for 30 days. We want you to be the only one that anybody can ask anything of. No one can pray to any other deity except you, O oh king. And for some foolish reason, the king, who is a pretty decent man overall, thinks this is a good idea and he signed the document in verse 9. But you can tell that they appeal to his pride. How silly that, that someone would think I could answer all the petitions of all the people for 30 days. Anyway, verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where his windows were open in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This is the key to Daniel's life of consistency for all the years that we followed him through the first six chapters. He got down on his knees and he prayed before God, probably following the prescription that David had laid out in Psalm 55, in morning, noon, and night, I pray. And Daniel had a rhythm of his life that included prayer. All of us should think that the consistency that we've just celebrated in the life of David, his faithfulness over 85 years of walking with Jesus is grounded in this verse, verse 10, that he still went back as he had always done to his prayer room to pray to God and to ask for his help. He was a man of prayer. Let's not underestimate this for the whole story about Daniel. I was thinking about the way in which prayer has shaped our church, and could I just remind you of some things that have happened in our history as a church together to which God be all praise, but some of us were thinking about it, and I recall that it was in 2005 that for some reason we began 2005 with an initiative as a church that we just began to pray, and we said, starting in January, we're gonna pray for 100 days. We called it 100 days of prayer. We made a notebook and we gave it out to everybody in the congregation. Some of you may remember that. We had a sort of a schedule to pray through for 100 days in 2005. And do you know what happened in 2006? 2006, we launched the Erie campus. And I make a connection between entreating God for something and God moving. And today, what's happening in Erie is absolutely off the charts, wonderful, awesome, what is happening there. And I don't think it comes from human ingenuity. I think it comes from entreating God and asking him to move, and he did. How about 2019? In 2019, 100 days wasn't enough. We were going to celebrate 130 days of our history, so we prayed for 130 days in 2019 do you remember what happened in 2020? Thornton. And somebody giving a church building and property to us. And today we're off rolling in Thornton. I just say that to say, we have a history of God working through prayer. Do you? Can you say in your life, I know that when I get on my knees before God, He works, He moves. You have a big decision that you have to make? Do you have to take a stand? Is there some place in your future that you need to be courageous? I want to encourage you. Look at the life of Daniel who, who got down on his hands and knees before God. Now, you might say, well, why did he do this? Why did he go out in front of everybody in the window? I think it was the pattern of his life that he did. And he wasn't going to make a compromise about that. Verse 11 says, and then these came by agreement, and they found Daniel making petition. I bet they had it all set up. They were going to go find him right away. And then they come to the king, and they said, didn't you sign an injunction that anybody who prays to any other god besides you for 30 days is going to be cast in the den of lions? And the king said, yes, it stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And I think that we don't know too much about this uh, law But they didn't make many laws so that they wouldn't have frivolous laws. That's smart. And so when they made it, it couldn't be undone. And they came to him in verse 13, not on the screen, but in your Bible. They answered and said to the king, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, (coughs) but makes his petitions three times a day if you're looking at verse 13, you can see right away that that is a vast overstatement, that they would accuse Daniel of paying no attention to the king. That's not true. He's been a faithful servant all the way through. But they want to take him down and tear him down immediately. He makes his petitions three times a day. Well, suddenly, verse 14, the king heard these words and much distress. He said his mind delivered Daniel. He was mad at himself for doing something so foolish. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. I think he probably searched, is there any case law that would get me out of this? And he couldn't find it. And they said, oh, no, king, you, it's the law of the Medes and the Persians. It has to be established. So verse 16, the king commanded Daniel, was brought and cast into the den of lions, and the king declared to Daniel, may God whom you serve continually deliver you. I love that verse because the king knows the testimony of Daniel in verse 16. May God whom you serve continually deliver you. And then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's That nothing be changed. Verse 18 The king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Now the king regrets what he has done and he is just uh, goes right back to the palace. Nobody's waiting around the lion's den. There was a big cave normally, and the lions, many lions, were in it. It was a way in which they carried out executions. They were thrown into the lion's den as a means of capital punishment, so that existed, and this sealed up, and Daniel's down in there. But I love the hope of the king. May the God you serve rescue you from these lions. Verse 19, then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. What does that indicate that he had? He had some faith, and he didn't give up. He so says, there's no possible way that Daniel's going to make it out of there. He didn't sleep all night. It says you know He ate, ate nothing, drank nothing, listened to no music, had no diversions, no entertainment, no women, nothing. And he was just in anxiety all night long in his palace. But at the break of day, when the light's coming up, he runs, and he came near, he cried out in a tone of anguish, Daniel! Servant of the living God. That's not insignificant. Servant of the living God, who should be as good as dead in the lion's den. Has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you out of the mouth of the lions? If I were Daniel, I would have waited. (laughs) Daniel! But he doesn't. He answers right away. And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Even in the lion's den, he answers that way. King, live forever, which you won't. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I've done no harm. God sent his angel, an angel, and he shut the mouth of the lion. I don't think there were two or three. I think there were many lions in there. And the angel shut their mouths because I was found blameless. And that, in a sense, is true. He's not sinless, but he was innocent of this charge. Verse 23, then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no harm was found on him because he, he trusted in God. And there you have the story. He's taken up out of there, alive, well trusting in god and we say unbelievable and it is almost unbelievable it's a miraculous that god shut up the mouths of the lion for this innocent servant of god at the age of 85 to 90 taken up and protected liberal commentators have said well they must not have been hungry lions they must have just been recently fed no or daniel might have hidden out in there in some corner no no Because what you see, what happens next is the king then takes all of the accusers in verse 24, and he gathers all the accusers. And according to the law of the Medes and Persians, anyone who is guilty of a crime, he and his whole family would be committed. That was a Medo-Persian law. So you look at it and say, why does the whole family go in there? That was the Medo-Persian law. And so it was done, and everybody was thrown in. And if you read verse 24, you know that everybody else who was accusing Daniel and all the family with them were thrown in, and then they were crushed before they hit the ground. And that detail is simply in there to say they were real lions. You know, They were hungry enough. And this was a work of God to protect his servant. Let's go on, and we'll finish what we need to take away because this episode is not so much about Daniel as it is about God, okay? We sing a song, Dare to be a Daniel, but it's not so much about Daniel. Verse 25, Darius wrote, to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell upon the face of the earth. That, that's the way it's been said a couple times, that everybody that they could reach, anybody in the kingdom, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree in all my royal dominion People are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel and suddenly becomes a convert to be a champion for Daniel's God because he says three things about Daniel. Number one, he says, for he is the living God, enduring forever. God is alive. And what Daniel... What Darius does now is he makes this pronouncement that creates a theology about God that is correct and accurate even from this king who may or may not have been fully committed to Yahweh. But he says these things. Daniel captures them. And number one is the God of Daniel is a living God. Do you believe that God's alive? You remember verse 20? Daniel, servant of the living God, has God been able to save you? You are the God of the living God. And we have a Savior Jesus Christ who died and rose again because He is a living God. And He is a God who is able to give life to your soul and eternal life. We have a living God. It's being challenged today. Is God alive? God is not dead, right? And part of the witness is that we are in the world to declare God is alive, He is real. And number two, He rules. The next thing that Darius says, his kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall never come to an end. God is a ruler. He rules over everything, even though men reject him. Even though women live as if he's not alive or not there, God is actually ruling. Maybe write this down for your own thinking for later. But in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is making his defense on the reality of God, He talks about God ruling over nations and ruling over people. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands. He's not served by human hands as though God needed anything, since He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made all the nations to live on the face of the earth and determines their allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place so that men might perhaps seek God and find him he's not far for in him we live and move and have our being he is a ruler whether we know it or not and we can find him seek him and if you've been holding God off the living Jesus Christ came to help us know him And I I would encourage you to look at this episode in Daniel and say, there is a God who lives, there is a God who rules, and I want him to rule in my life. And the last thing he says is he rescues, he delivers, and he works signs and wonders in heaven on the earth, and he is the one who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. He's a rescuer. And if you don't know him yet, or if you don't know who he is, The one thing he wants to rescue from is your own sinfulness, your your own failure to live up to the way God asks. And here's Darius saying, there's a living God, there's a ruling God, there's a rescuing God. And if you need rescue, he's there. He's there. I love that this is for us. Could I give a word? Daniel is the exception. It's hard to think of him as the rule because there are many believers who took a stand and ultimately lost their lives and are today around the world. So we look at that and say it was God's pleasure to rescue him here, to close the the mouths of the lions and to pull him up out of the pit. But Isaiah, did he trust in God? Yeah, and he was sawn in two. The Apostle Paul Hero of the faith. Author of much of the New Testament. Apparently lost his head under Nero. Beheaded. Peter, the apostle. Faithful after denying the Lord and then living his whole life to martyrdom and crucified upside down. There are plenty of stories where the rescue is being ushered into heaven. And as with Paul... For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Daniel is an exemplary man who was faithful throughout all his life, and his foundation was prayer, and God was with him through it all. Because God's a living God, He's a ruling God, He's a rescuing God. Let's pray to him. Father, whatever we're in this morning, I pray that you will give us a vision for our life to be, in some sense, like Daniel. Faithful, under intense difficulty, when we're challenged, whether to take a stand, to draw a line, I pray that we will have an internal sense of resolve and trust in the Lord that's rooted in a life of prayer that says you are who you say you are. It, it is a battle to live in a world that wants to contradict your law. And I pray that you'll give us courage to remember that the battle belongs to you and that you sustain us in the midst of these times. And I pray that you'll just give us a heart, Lord, to think of Daniel, to trust in you, to pray and to believe you are the living God, the ruling God, ruling us, and you are the rescuing God. I pray for anybody here today who needs to be rescued from eternal judgment, being away from the presence of God, that this would be the day that they would call upon you and be saved. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Everybody said, amen. Let's stand together and sing.